0: Over the last couple of weeks, I read through a book on the practical theology of the resurrection. It's titled, Alive, How the Resurrection of Christ Changes Everything. And the author, a pastor in the southeastern USA, was uh, he told a story about being on vacation with his family. And as they were enjoying a dinner out as a family in a picturesque place, his little four-year-old daughter, while, while munching on her chicken nuggets, looks up at her folks and says, We're all going to die! He and his wife were a little startled, weren't quite sure what to say. Before, but before they could think of how to respond, their little girl took another bite of her chicken nugget and said, but it's okay, Jesus moved the stone. Uh-huh. I thought, what a wonderful expression of hope in the mind of a child, because we are all going to die sometime, somehow, some way, somewhere, we're all going to die. Uh, but if we have confidence in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's okay because he defeated death. As John 14, and 19 says, Jesus said, Because I live, you will also live. On a related note, a college roommate of our daughter Bethany lost her husband uh, four weeks ago on Friday. She's about Bethany's age, so young. And as she pondered her loss as a young wife and, and struggled with her grief, she, she wrote the following just a couple of days ago on Good Friday. She said, On a dark Friday four weeks ago, the love of my life died. How can this be good to take my son's daddy, to leave me lonely, to shatter his parents and family, to devastate his friends? I don't understand. But on a dark Friday 2,000 years ago, the light of the world died. How can that have been good? To tear a son from his mother, to shatter the hopes and dreams of his followers and friends. To leave them lonely and afraid, I don't understand. But this is what I do know. My grief has an expiration date because Jesus' tomb was temporary. Our pain has a healing balm because by his wounds we are healed. And my dark Friday has a glimmer of hope because of his good Friday. Thank you, Jesus. You know, without the resurrection of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith is worthless. Without the resurrection, our faith is no different than any other world religion. If Jesus Christ died, but if he didn't rise again, we have absolutely no hope. Last week, uh, for those of you who were with us or listened online along the way, we we shared with you some thoughts regarding the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus Christ is God, we said. The resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus is truly the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. The resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus accomplished his mission. The resurrection is powerful because it fulfills the hope of God's people. And then the resurrection is powerful because it means that we have a living Savior, a high priest who lives forever, who goes before God on our behalf and advocates for us because of who he is and what he does, and we want to complete our thoughts on the power of the resurrection this Easter Sunday. And I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter three. <clears throat> Just one scripture we're going to look at today: Philippians chapter three. While you're turning there, on October 28th of 1949, a young man named Jim Elliott wrote the following statement in his Bible study journal. He said, it is, he is no fool." who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those words would probably have never become well known if it were not for the fact that this young man died a few years later in the jungle in Ecuador. He was a missionary trying to reach an unreached tribe deep in the South American jungle, and that tribe killed him along with four of his other missionary friends in a, a now-famous incident that occurred in January of 1956. Jim Elliott's widow, the now-well-known Elizabeth Elliott, uh, published his journal several years after his death. But it's interesting. I saw a picture of it online this week. It's a handwritten note in a personal journal has now become an incredibly famous quote. I don't know what folks know in heaven, but Jim Elliott would have I had no idea his quote would go all over the world, his little handwritten quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot wasn't doing a Bible study on Philippians 3 when he wrote these words, but he could have been. Because that's exactly the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching to his Philippian friends. We're going to read beginning in verse 4 and go up to verse 11. Philippians 3, verse 4 up to 11. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, Paul writes, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There were groups of people in the Apostle Paul's day throughout the first century who were preaching that you had to become a Jewish in order to be saved. You had to join the Jewish faith and keep the law of Moses, and then you could just kind of add faith in Christ. Lots of people, they're not Jewish today, but they they try to do the same sort of thing. They say, you have to be this or that or become this or that. Uh, And uh, people think, if I keep certain lists of rules or whatever, I can be good enough to get to heaven because of what I do. And then their faith in Christ is kind of just an add-on to their works. The Apostle Paul called these folks here, he didn't call them here in this passage, but he was writing to the churches in, in Galatia. He called them in Galatians too, Judaizers. He just meant they're trying to force everyone to keep the law of Moses and then add on Christ. Many people today do the same sort of thing. They try to add this or add that to their faith. And they try to be good and then just sort of trust Jesus to take me the rest of the way. They're the modern day Judaizers. And if you were going to diagram this passage of scripture, you could put this passage kind of in two columns. spiritual gains. And spiritual losses. And Paul begins by listing what he thought were his spiritual gains. They were actually attempts to achieve salvation by self effort. Uh, we could call them religious credits that do not impress God. And we learn several truths from what Paul is de- describing here and what he thought he had as far as a, a new corner on God, what he thought his religious credits were. The first one is this, that you can't achieve salvation through rituals. Now he, he mentions here, when he talks about having confidence in the flesh, he talks about uh, the circumcised on the eighth day. That's the Jewish rite of circumcision of their little baby boys, but, uh, which of course we don't practice as a Jewish rite today. But you could add all kinds of things to that list. You could add baptism, you could add church membership, you could add, uh, some people think you have to speak in tongues to be saved, some people think you have, an exp- have to have an experience they call being slain in the spirit or you're not saved, other people say you have to belong to a, per- a particular church or whatever. We have a long list of rituals that people try to add to their life to give them religious credits with God. Paul says you can't, be, you can't achieve salvation through rituals. Secondly, he says you can't achieve salvation by race. He calls himself, he said, he said, I am of the stock of Israel. A lot of Jewish people in his day uh, didn't really know what tribe they were a part of. They knew they were partly Jewish. But the Apostle Paul says, hey, he said, I am 100% Jewish. I am of the stock of Israel. Uh, so there are a lot of people today who think you, they have a corner on God because of their ethnic background. And that if you don't have a certain shade of your skin color or, or, or whatever, that, that you, you don't have a special corner on God. Paul says, when I was counting on my flesh, he said, I was going for rituals. I was counting myself as, as being of the right race to, uh, to have a corner on God. But then he thirdly says, you can't achieve salvation by social rank. He calls himself of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, to us today, that doesn't mean anything. But to the Apostle Paul, the people of the Apostle Paul's day, Benjamin was a distinguished tribe. Many of you will remember there were twelve tribes in the nation of Israel. Benjamin was a distinguished tribe. You know when Joshua divided up the land by tribal allotment in the book of Joshua? The tribe of Benjamin got Jerusalem. They got the holy city, which they were very proud of for for, for, for centuries afterwards. When the kingdom divided The only two tribes that remained loyal to the line of David were Benjamin and Judah. King Saul, the very first king of Israel, he was a a Benjamite. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who helped to save the Jews from destruction in the book of Esther, they were all of the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin was a highly respected tribe in Israel. The apostle Paul says, hey, I'm I'm not only a Jew. He said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin Yeah. I had confidence in the flesh. I got it. But then he says you can't achieve salvation by religious traditions. He calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Again, doesn't mean much to us in our modern world, but it meant that he could speak and read the Hebrew language. It meant that he had not totally assimilated into the Greek and Roman culture in his personal life. Many Jewish people only spoke Aramaic, the common, ordinary language folks spoke, or they spoke Greek, but they did not read or write Hebrew. Paul says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Some of you will get a kick out of this. Paul, Paul could be saying, I am the real full blood. <laughs> the real one. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm the real thing, man. But he said, you can't achieve salvation by religious tradition. You can't achieve salvation by religious devotion. He said, I'm a Pharisee. Now, of course, when we use the word today, Pharisee, uh, we always use it as as a negative, self-righteous and hypocritical, for obvious reasons. Because those who opposed the Lord Jesus Christ during His ministry, not all the Pharisees did, but of the ones who did, they were self-righteous and hypocritical. So that's become uh, kind of an idiom for us today. But in the Apostle Paul's day, uh, the Pharisees were a powerful religious group. They were highly educated. They were politically connected. They were socially powerful. They were generally wealthy. They were notable religious leaders. The Jewish historian Josephus says there were only about 6,000 Pharisees, and so not a, very, not a very large group, so a very elite club to belong to. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. They were guardians of the law of Moses. They, they labored to keep the letter of the law in every area of life. And then Paul says, "I was filled with zeal." In verse six, I mean, he said, "But I, I can't achieve salvation by religious sincerity." Uh, he had, he said, I, "I persecuted the church in its early years. He was misguided, but he did have zeal. He was determined to love good and hate evil. He thought the early Christians were wrong and Judaism was right, and he was dedicated to what he thought was the truth. He had religious sincerity." I know lots of people like that today. They're misguided, but boy, they're very sincere. But then Paul kind of tops it all off when he talks about concerning, at the end of verse 6, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But he says you can't achieve salvation by works-based righteousness. Paul was a model citizen in Israel. You couldn't point to anything in his life that was out of whack. He had the right education, the right social connections, the right reputation, the right religious traditions, the right work ethic. He was devoted to God, so he thought. He was sincere. The Apostle Paul had an impeccable life story. He was just an all-around terrific person. Nobody could have looked at Paul and said, man, that guy's really got some issues. He is really screwed up. Paul says, no. He said, "I I was blameless. And I want to emphasize one very important fact to you that Paul is driving at here in this text. Paul had righteousness. Paul had righteousness, but it was the wrong kind. He had righteousness that comes from trying to be good. And I know know so many folks who are nice people, model citizens, honest, hardworking, decent folks and they are expecting to get to heaven because they are nice honest decent folks and and you know they do have righteousness they just got the wrong kind because it's it's works based righteousness and God is not impressed why you might ask because God's standard is perfection no one can measure up to perfection and so the, the, the only righteousness, Paul says, that actually counts in the eyes of God is the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through knowing Christ, being found in Him, he says. He says, I want to experience or what, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All those other things, he says, I count them as rubbish so that I can gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's verse 9. The word there, know, that Paul uses several times, knowing Christ and knowing the power of His resurrection and having the knowledge of Him. That word know uh, is not knowing facts or details. It means knowledge by experience, knowledge by relationship. Knowledge by personal involvement. And it's used this way many times in the New Testament. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. He said in John 17, this is eternal life. when he's talking to God the Father. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 2 Corinthians 4, God has shown in our hearts, Paul wrote, to give the light of of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. and a wonderful passage I love in 1 John 5, we know, John writes, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we can know Him who is true. Not just know the facts, but to actually know by experience, to know by relationship, to know by personal involvement. And Paul says, my righteousness, my righteousness now, he says, comes from knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. doesn't come from all the stuff I had confidence in before. My religious sincerity and my religious devotion and my religious connections, etc., etc. He said, my righteousness comes from knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that description defines the three spiritual positions of the Lord. Christ, meaning the promised Savior, the messenger, prophet from God. Jesus, meaning our Savior, emphasizing his role as our high priest, our intercessor, our go-between. Lord, meaning he's our sovereign ruler over all creation. So we see Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king. All of those things is Christ, Jesus, my Lord, and Paul says, I know him. And that's why I have righteousness. See, the only righteousness that counts in the eyes of God is the righteousness that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The righteousness that God grants to us by faith. Why is faith-based righteousness better than works-based righteousness? Because works-based righteousness can never be perfect. We, we can never be good enough. The nicest most decent model citizen on planet earth, is not perfect, especially if we examine what goes on in our thoughts. But faith-based righteousness, however, is perfect because the object of our faith is perfect. You see, my, my faith is weak. My faith may falter and stumble. But the one that I'm trusting, he's perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ was sinless and spotless and undefiled, so when we are trusting Him and what He accomplished through His death and resurrection, we receive perfect righteousness from Him. Second Corinthians 5.21, what a great verse. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That is, He carried all of our sin on the cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's what was just read a moment ago, that great exchange. God takes all our defilement, and He gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because we can never be good enough. The only way we can have the righteousness that gains us access to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we access faith-based righteousness through Jesus Christ, then we can know the power of the resurrection, as Paul writes in verse 10. He said, "That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." You say, "What? What's he mean by all that?" Let's let us let us think about that for just for just a moment. We can know the the power of the resurrection. We can know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We can be confident of our own resurrection. How is that? Well, you know, the resurrection was the greatest display of Jesus' power and authority ever. Jesus healed the sick. He straightened out withered arms and crippled legs. He made blind eyes see. He raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. He could control the weather with verbal commands. He could take a little boy's sack lunch and create enough food out of it to feed thousands of people. But you know, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, by his own power, he revealed his absolute authority over the physical world and the spirit world. The Apostle Paul says we can know by experience, we can know by relationship that same resurrection power the power for eternal life, and the power for living for God's glory right now. But he also says we can know the fellowship of his suffering. Now what's he mean by that? Who wants to join Jesus in suffering? Well, you know what? The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with Christ are in times of suffering. Because when those times come, we run to Christ, and we find mercy and strength and comfort and peace. And we understand the sufferings of Christ in ways that we never would otherwise. And it deepens our relationship with Him. We can also gain the confidence of our future resurrection and our eternal life with the Lord Jesus. It's an interesting phrase there at the end of verse 11, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, The Greek text literally reads, it's a little graphic, but it literally reads, The resurrection out from among the corpses. The resurrection out from among the corpses. That's what that phrase literally means. The resurrection of the dead. And it's a graphic yet beautiful picture of our confidence in the Lord Jesus. It's always used, that phrase appears many times in the New Testament, always used in reference to those who have trusted Christ and who have his righteousness. So through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can trade all of our self-efforts at righteousness. And we can experience by faith the power of the resurrection, fellowship with Christ in times of suffering, and the confidence of the future resurrection out from among the corpses. It's It's a glorious and unbelievable exchange, yet it can be ours by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of you probably remember, if you've been around Whitetail Baptist Church for a while, you remember the the Sassick sisters who came and sang for us on two different occasions. Uh, The four of them, there were actually five girls, the four older ones came and sang for us. Uh, Three of them are married now, and uh, two married career Air Force guys and have been transferred out of Great Falls. But the middle daughter, Josie, married to an Air Force guy, they're stationed in Wichita now. She had a baby two weeks ago born with genetic lung issues, and the little one died this past Good Friday, two days ago. And I want to read to you uh, Josie's testimony because it it illustrates exactly what we've been talking about. I'm going to stick a little picture up there of her little one. Christina means follower of Christ. Jeff and I picked that name for her after finding out about her heart defect before she was born. We realized that the most important thing for her was that she was a follower of Christ because we did not know what her future would hold. What we didn't know is that instead of her name being a reminder for her to follow Christ, it would be a reminder for her mommy and daddy. Christina went to be with Jesus today. She just wrote this on Good Friday. We are so thankful God answered prayer and showed us which path to take for Christina. We are so thankful for heaven, for God sending Jesus to die on the cross, and we are so thankful for the promise that we will be there one day because we believe Jesus is our Savior and the only way to heaven. We prayed for God to heal our baby, and He did. She is in perfect bliss with Jesus now, and we are so thankful for that. We miss her. We grieve her. We sob for her, but we are thankful she is there and able to breathe. No more tubes and lines, no more crying, no more pain. God allowed our baby to be born and us to know her and have her for two weeks. Then he took her to heaven. Thank you for praying. Thank you for encouraging us. Please would you pray for Jeff and I. God has given us and will continue to give us grace But please pray for us in the coming months of the years and years that we would be faithful followers of Christ and not allow this circumstance to give us doubt about God and his goodness and his plans. God is still good. When you think of Christina, think on the meaning of her name to be a follower of Christ and be one. I hope her short life is somehow able to point some of you to Jesus. It was pointed out to me that she passed on The Friday, Jesus would have died before rising again. So as you celebrate Easter this weekend, please know that Jesus died and rose again so that we can have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with him. Thank you for loving us and our beautiful baby girl, and thank you for praying for us. God answered. That, my friends, is knowing the power of the resurrection. And having fellowship with Christ in times of suffering. And having the confidence of a future resurrection out from among the corpses. This Resurrection Sunday, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just know facts about him. Do you know him in a personal way? Let's pray. Lord, we have so many folks that we know, so many folks that we love, so many folks we have, in many ways, deep feelings for, and they are still trying to reach God in their own strength. They're nice, decent, hardworking folks. They've got righteousness, they just got the wrong kind. They've got righteousness that's works-based rather than faith-based. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, we who know you as our Savior, Lord, help us to live in such a way that people will see that we know Christ Jesus, our Lord, in a personal way, that we have experienced the power of the resurrection, we understand the fellowship of his suffering, we know one day we'll be raised again to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven forever and ever. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today who is not sure where they are going or they're trusting the wrong thing. They're trusting their works and their goodness and their background and their education and their niceness to their neighbors and their relatives and all these other things that Paul said, you you cannot achieve salvation by works-based righteousness. Pray, Father, you'd open their eyes to see the truth. And may they come to know Our living Savior, perhaps even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.